A lot of movies have had their legs kicked out from underneath them in 2020 by the coronavirus. Especially such notable ones that we were looking forward to like Christopher Nolan's Tenet, Marvel's Black Widow, and Fast and the Furious number 394. One of them, though, that cannot blame its failures on the virus is Disney's version of Artemis Fowl. And I very deliberately use the word version because it is quite different from Owen Colfer's original. So after having reread the book, because I watched the movie and I was trying to figure out why I didn't like it so much, I decided that uh, it's time to do an episode on it because it's one of those books that I really enjoyed and I yet somehow have not covered it on the podcast. So, welcome to the Brother Trucker Book Club podcast, episode 116. I am your host, Graham Bradley. Ready and... You, dear listener, can now become a patron of Dread Pennies, my independent creative company, wherein I do all of my art, books, podcasts, and more. Check out patreon.com slash dreadpennies. All right, once again, we're going to take a quick dive into the mailbag. You know what? No, it's not going to be a quick dive. We've got two pieces here that uh, I have found a way to kind of tie their, the questions together because, um, you know, after you've read so many books, you kind of get an idea of when a question can touch on a similar theme. But uh, the first one is uh, someone who slid into my DMs on the Instagram. Uh, it's at DreadPennies. I don't have a, a Brother Trucker book club Instagram. I just use DreadPennies for that one. This one is from a girl named Kristen, who has a really cool username. I'm not going to say the whole thing, but it's Emojotron. Uh, Dear Brother Trucker, what are your favorite summer books? I like Peter Heller and Peter Mayle. Those are the authors, I assume. Uh, actually, yes, I've read both of them. Uh, and Or maybe back-to-school books. All right, so Peter Heller and Peter Mayle. Peter Mayle wrote A Good Year. Uh, and what's the other one that I'm thinking of? Anything Considered. Uh, as well as The Corsican Caper. Uh, he's written a whole bunch of others, but those are the three of his that I've read. Uh, I enjoyed A Good Year. I enjoyed the movie more. Uh, anything Considered was a bit higher higher, pay, higher action level, I guess. It was a little bit higher intensity. That's the word I'm going for. Um, and that's one that I still haven't reviewed in its entirety. I haven't read it in about 10 years, even though I own a, hard, a hardcover copy. I, I think I'd like to reread that. I've been meaning to send it off to uh, Dr. Farmer in Idaho, or in Ohio, though. Basically the same state, right? Uh, he recently discovered... I wouldn't say that he discovered. He recently posted that he was reading a Peter Mail book, too, uh, funnily enough, a, a year in Provence. Um, this is my brother who's also spent a lot of time in Europe, uh, even spent some time there in the summer of 2010 as part of his Ph.D. program. He, he spent a few months in Paris. So uh, he and his wife, they've, they've got a love for that aesthetic. Um, I love it in print, and I've even lived in parts of Spain that were similar um, topographically. Uh, even had some cultural overlap, which is, I think, part of why the movie A Good Year clicks with me, is it, it reminds me of parts of northern Spain. But uh, as summertime reads, yeah, they're great. Um, they're light. Anything considered is a little bit more a little bit more intense, like I said, than the other ones, whereas the Corsican caper, like, you, you've got a villain that's really easy to hate, but they, they vanquish him pretty easily, and then spend some time enjoying good food and sunshine in the French Riviera. 
Uh, so yeah, I, I think uh, Peter Mail is an excellent choice. Peter Heller is one where um, I read one of his books that came highly recommended, and I didn't really dive into it that much. I mean, well, no, that's not true. I, I dove into it. I didn't get into it that much. Uh, again, Dr. Farmer read this one and recommended it to me. Was this last summer? I'm pretty sure I read it last summer. Um, and then when I was working at uh, Turdwater, uh, my my friend and coworker Eric, who was a salesman, he was he's probably about five or six years older than I am. Um, single dude lives that single bachelor life. I didn't really peg him as a reader. I guess he's not a voracious reader. He's he's got more of the inclination to read things that are in a very specific vein. And he also mentioned that book right around the same time Dr. Farmer did, kind of out of nowhere. He's like, man, I had this job one summer and it was just out in the mountains in the middle of nowhere and. And, uh, you know, I, I couldn't get back to that book fast enough. I was just devouring it. I was like, all right, I'll check this one out. Uh, the Dog Stars is what it was called. And it's kind of a post-viral, post-apocalyptic thing, like most of humanity's knocked out. And uh, it's mainly about this guy who kind of lives on his own in the Mountain West with his dog. And he's a pilot. He's got an airplane. He's got access to a fuel supply. But he can only fly so far in this small plane before he's got to fly back or else he's out of range. But then he gets a signal on the radio from somebody living out in the mountains somewhere and so he's got to decide you know is it is it worth it for me to try to fly out and find these people because they're beyond my range so if I go out there and there's nobody there I've basically doomed myself to wherever I land so you know in intense setup and everything I found the writing to be a little bit drawn out um, it's not a book that I'm opposed to taking another swing at again later uh, so it was it was interesting um, Content-wise, I found it to be a little bit too rough. There's certain languages and or language. There's certain certain uh, level of profane language that I don't really care for, and uh, some thematic elements that are that are beyond what I like to consume in in uh, enjoyable reading. But um, the the visuals, the the uh, environmental evocativeness of it, um, you know, it captures that spirit really well. I posted on on Twitter recently a, a screen cap from one of the Charlie Brown animated specials where they the kids all go to camp and they go and get in a raft race and they're floating down this river and they're at a camp with <laughs> no adult supervision and of course having this boat race where they got to camp out in the forest in the middle of the night and you know one of those scenarios that's just absolutely impossible but you like to fantasize about it especially in the summertime and uh, that's the aesthetic that I like to think of you know, in, in the summer. And I think a lot of books, uh, can, can capture that. And, uh, yeah, Peter Mail and Peter Heller are, are great recommendations. Um, Schultz really captures that visually with his work. Uh, as far as go back to school books, um, I mean, the first one that comes to mind is Harry Potter. Cause you get six of the seven books are about him going back to school. Um, other than that, I don't know. I, I feel like you'll find a lot of middle grade that touches on that really because that's what that age group does is they go back to school in September. Um, I also come to think of it, what's that one with the, like there's there pencil drawings on lined paper. Why can I not think of the name of that one? They did a couple of movies of them. Uh, fourth grade wimp, diary of a wimpy kid. That's what it was. It was like something fourth grader. Uh, I watched the first movie of that one, and, and uh, it manages to capture you know a whole year of, of school really well. So I guess try those ones. Uh, I haven't read the books. Uh, I eventually will 
we'll take a crack at those. Uh, and then, oh, this, oh, sorry, that's all for, uh, for Kristen, for Emojotron. This other one here, I was really excited to get this email because this one was, was really, really cool. So uh, sometime last year, I broke down the stats on Anchor on the, uh, uh, you know, the, as far as like listenership goes, mostly dudes, mostly, you know, between 20 and 40. Um, and most of you listen to this on Apple Podcasts. Excuse me here. Uh, I had to take a sip of my non-podcast sponsoring beverage. Got to keep those pipes lubricated. Um, and what surprised me was that something like 8% of my listeners are in Uzbekistan. And I tweeted that out once. And uh, my buddy David West said, yeah, I've got my, I can't remember how he said it, like his, his router or something, some kind of scrambler <laughs> saying that uh, that's how he kind of hides his IP trail online. Is just that it, it redirects it or something to originate as if it were from Uzbekistan. Well, on the one hand, I'm kind of disappointed that I don't actually have any listeners in Uzbekistan. But on the other hand, I think it's kind of cool that David's not the only one that does this. Here's an email from uh, Kitty and Pearl. Hi, Brother Trucker. My sister and I have listened to all of your podcasts, and we have read some of the books on them. We really like your show. My dad said we could email you after we showed him the one where you said you had fans in Uzbekistan. That's us, only we aren't really there. Dad works in a cybersecurity firm, and he is really careful with the internet in our house. Our router thinks we are in Uzbekistan. Kitty and Pearl aren't our real names. Mom and Dad just want us to be safe. Me and my sister loved the new Hunger Games book, and we loved your episode with your wife. She is really cool. I agree. You haven't talked about any John Green books on your show. He is one of my favorites. Do you like him? And Pearl wants to know if you have any more fairy tales because she really likes Kill the Beast. Have a great day and see you out there. Awesome. Thank you, girls. And uh, thanks for thanks for showing my pod to your dad. I uh, wonder if he's a reader. I wonder if he likes it. Uh, as for what uh, the questions you had there at the end, have I read any John Green? Yes, I have read... Uh, let me try to go through the list of titles in my head. There was one where this kid wanted to date a bunch of girls or he only dated girls with the same name because he was like autistic or something uh, an abundance of Catherines they were all named Catherine yeah he named he'd only ever dated like 19 girls going I mean dated he you know we're going all the way back to elementary school here like the first girl he ever liked was a girl named Catherine and she broke his heart in like kindergarten and so every girl he ever dated after that was a girl named Catherine but this kid had some kind of uh, mental thing going he was he was a borderline prodigy and he was trying to have a eureka moment and I John Green's books have a lot of common themes with, uh, or, or common elements even where you've got like a, a kind of pretentious, precocious um, you know, teenager that's uncomfortable in their own skin. They're, they're like way, way in touch with their poetic side and their artistic side and their, their high emotional intelligence um, to a point where... Even in my adult years, when I when I discovered John Green, I, this is back when I had an agent about eight years ago, and she recommended that I read John Green to kind of uh, get ideas for how to use uh, the voice for my main characters in the books that I was writing. And I I read it, and it was just it was a voice that I couldn't really relate to because uh, I didn't see a whole lot of overlap between how his characters thought and how I thought when I was in my teens. Um, and so as, as a result, as I read two or three of his books, I read the other one about the stars, Fault in Our Stars, and I want to say the final one was Paper Towns. That's the one where um, 
the girl sneaks into the boy's bedroom dressed as a ninja and they go around doing a whole bunch of crazy stuff. Uh, I think he explores a lot of interesting themes. I also, I think I, I disagree with a lot of the decisions that his characters make just because, I mean, they're, they're from the perspective of those characters, so they're presented as right, but then you go and you read them and, you know, maybe the problem is that I'm not in the target age group, but I'm reading these about these characters, you know, doing X, Y, Z, and I'm like, you guys are freaking idiots. But then I stop and think, you know, when I was 17, I was an idiot too. So, um, obviously John Green's very successful. I've, I've taken three good tries at his books. Uh, you know, I, I haven't been feeling the itch to really go back and devour his stuff, but, uh, I'm, I'm glad that, you know, he's, he's got a fandom good for him. Um, and people that like his books power to him. Uh, as for what Pearl asked about whether I'm going to write other fairy tales, uh, haven't really committed to that one either. Kill the Beast was kind of a one-off just because I, I, I love, uh, you know, Beauty and the Beast so much and I, I had a fun idea for it. Um, I feel like there are a lot of people writing alternate versions of fairy tales just because as far as writing a story goes, half the work is done for you. <laughs> um, you know, world building and setup and character development can be tough. So when you're, when you're building in an existing framework and just having to tweak things, it, it takes less time and less effort. Uh, that's why from beginning to end, me getting Kill the Beast out only took about four or five months. Uh, and most of that was tied up in getting the art done at a busy time of year. So, uh, I haven't really planned on doing any other ones, but, uh, uh, well, no, I've got one coming out called Fool Silver, but that's based on a Spanish fairy tale that's not very well known here in, in the Americas. So, uh, uh, I, I guess we'll have to see, but stay tuned for, for more, uh, announcements on that one. Uh, as far as retelling stories goes, um, I did not look up the episode numbers on these ones, but I, I told you guys about a series by Stephen Lawhead called the King Raven trilogy. That's his version of the Robin Hood trilogy or the Robin Hood story. And then, um, Tem Rare by Naomi Novik. It's her retelling the Napoleonic War with dragons and uh, a, a militarized dragon air corps. Um, that's a series that started much better than it ended. I, I think it went in a weird direction by the time that it ended. But the reason that I bring it up, or I bring both these series up, is uh, there's a scene in the third Temeraire book called Black Powder War where the civilized dragons from the Air Corps meet a bunch of ferals out in the wild, and the feral dragons have their own language. They can't speak English or anything else. Uh, but the, the tame dragons are able to pick it up and communicate with them and then translate for the humans. And uh, they're, they're kind of doing this big dragon convoy expedition. And uh, one night as they're, they're settling into a camp in the middle of nowhere, uh, the feral dragons uh, start telling stories. And then they start fighting each other. And the humans are like, what's going on? And so the tame dragons translate and they say, well, they started telling a story about a cave and a treasure and one dragon didn't like it so he changed the story and now they're arguing over what the treasure is and who gets it and whether the story's too easy or something and I, as I'm reading this at the meta level I kind of laughed and I thought that's kind of what a lot of authors do by retelling the same story over and over again I mean you can get on Amazon and probably find a dozen retellings of Beauty and the Beast without trying too hard uh, and that goes for every fairy tale that's been going on um in, in the mainstream of publishing for probably the last 10 years. Uh, I would say it, it kind of started with, uh, with Stephanie Meyer getting famous, and then she, uh, she plugged April Lynn Pike's book, which was a take on fairies, which uh, you know, then got 
fairies all popular and then fairy tales kind of spun out from there um you know the, the big publishers and big booksellers really embraced that and it, it still got steam because uh you know we we enjoy that we enjoy retelling stories and we as writers especially enjoy retelling them our way and, and it's something that i'm it's a theme that i'm exploring in in a couple of different story ideas that i have uh they're not necessarily fairy tales but a lot of my ideas are like well what if this was x but with y instead of you know whatever other letter in the alphabet we're going to use uh in the epilogue of hood by stephen lawhead he addresses in a much more precise fashion how that works uh he in the epilogue of that book he talks about how the robin hood legend originated and um you know, how it's changed over time, what elements were introduced, largely based on who was telling the story and to whom they were telling it. Uh, and that's how, how, you know, retellings come to be. So even if I'm, you know, a roundabout way of saying all this, even if I'm not planning on doing fairy tale, fairy tale retellings bah, down the road, uh, a lot of my ideas, especially the ones that are going to be on the Dread Pennies Adventure Hour, are my version of, of other stories that I've enjoyed, but I thought, well, what if it was this, but with that? So stay tuned for those kinds of stories be, because I'll, I'll be writing those, whether they're sci-fi or fantasy or what have you. So uh, Kristen and Kitty and Pearl, thank you, the three of you, for writing in. And to anybody else listening, if you want to drop me a line, dreadpennies at gmail.com, or you can uh, send me a DM on the Twitters or on the Instas, at dreadpennies. And uh, yeah, keep them coming. I am really really enjoying this section i i love talking with you even if it's kind of linear as far as the podcast goes but questions are coming in answers are going out let's keep it moving okay artemis fowl what is it why should you care and why is everybody who cares mad about the movie uh this book is almost 20 years old and it has been 12 years since I read it for the first time. First in a series, uh, there are eight in total, and there have been a few graphic novel adaptations of it, I want to say. And fans of this series have been hankering for a good on-screen adaptation for a long time. Um, I don't think Disney was the first studio to buy film rights to it, but it ended up in development hell forever. Uh, so long that uh, I think they had originally cast an actor to play the character and by the time that they would have been able to make the movie he was way too old to play him which you know for some studios hasn't been a problem like I said with The Giver they cast a 25 year old to play an 18 year old in the original book the character was 12 uh, Artemis is also 12 and they stick with that in this movie to their credit there are some things that they do well and others that they do not so well uh, so the premise is this. Uh, magic is real, magical creatures are real, they, they all kind of refer to themselves collectively as the people, whether they are fairies, trolls, dwarves, centaurs, or, or whatever. Um, they, they don't like the mud people, that's us, that's human beings up top. They went into hiding deep underground, uh, and they are extremely technologically advanced. Uh, the series is kind of classified as a science fantasy. Um, so you've got, you know, high-tech versions of, of uh, kind of fantasy things. The, the police, they call themselves the, the lower elements police, and uh, they have a, a, a spy division that comes up to the surface that's LEP, LEP Recon. Hey-o! Um, you know, they've got 
different models of wings that they can wear to fly and buzz around fast and they've got uh, different you know laser pistols and computer chips and stuff that they use and and uh, sorry once again the non-podcast sponsoring beverage um, anyway like the tech side of it is really cool but they they make sure that the the human world and the fairy world stays separate now our main character is Artemis who is the the son of a wealthy family heir to the fortune uh, his dad is missing presumed dead his mom is crazy and Artemis who has an insanely high IQ is uh, traipsing about the world in search of something and he's got his trusty sidekick Butler with him Butler is a huge guy his, his, he actually has a name uh, but everybody just refers to him as Butler Butler is his surname and uh, they're they're on the the hunt for something. They're looking for a book that a fairy would have that would give them access to uh, to knowledge that is forbidden to the mud people. Why Artemis is looking for this is unclear at first, but um, the author Owen Colfer, who I've I've reviewed a few of his, blah, 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 a few of his books before, um, doesn't leave you hanging uh, you know, too fast too often. Usually right around the time you have a question, you know, you start to get an answer on it, or, or at least like the, the narrator will address it so that it's almost like he's listening to you. He knows you've got a concern about something and the answer is right around the corner. Well, uh, Artemis is looking for this book because it will give him knowledge that he needs to uh, obtain a certain thing. And um, beyond that, I don't want to say too much because it is, it's a caper, it's a heist, it's a siege, it's a whole different, it's a whole bunch of types of stories uh, all wrapped into one because once the lower elements police find out that Artemis has this knowledge and that he goes and uh, uses it to capture a fairy and hold her hostage in his mansion, they lay siege to his mansion on the surface while, with all of their high tech and uh, their, their tech is the, it's the kind of stuff that they use to stay hidden and they use to uh, wipe humans' memories and whatnot. Um, Artemis swears that he's have it, he's found a way to beat it and now the police are scrambling to to find out what this kid wants how do we uh, not give it to him and and yada 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 so um, as far as like the the dynamic of a protagonist antagonist goes um, Artemis is the main character but he is the bad guy and if we're talking about differences between the book and the movie in the movie, they really shy away from that. They they make him a very, very smart kid and cunning and even cold-hearted and calculating in some ways, but they still make him a, a good guy. And he's just going up against you know, these, these fairies and these other creatures that are, are there but aren't necessarily bad. Um, the movie also kind of gets bogged down in storylines from future books in the series that they tied in, tangled to it, and just made a huge mess of. Um, Artemis's mother is dead in the movie versus she's just kind of crazy and and uh, in, a, in a loopy mental state. His dad is present in the movie and is a great guy versus, you know, in the, in the book he was also a criminal mastermind and he was gone. So <clears throat> that, that dynamic, that attribute of the character, which was central to the appeal of him, because it kind of gave you a chance to secretly root for the bad guy and still watch him go through a character arc I mean all of that was just gone uh, 
the movie was much more of a of a visual presentation of like, oh, here's what this this world would be like. It would be cool to see, but all of the things that really gave it, you know, e- emotional and substantial and psychological value, were scrubbed from it. Um, on another note, I will say that this is one movie where it's it's an instance of. Uh, I think this is a stupid term, race bending, where you know a, a character is one race and they they change it for the movie. But you didn't see a whole lot of stink over that, you know, one way or the other, which you know is is fine. You know, my two cents on that whole thing is, you know, if you're going to adapt a character, adapt a character. Um, you know, to quote Eric D. July, don't go tokenizing characters. You know, build build a character from the ground up. Uh, in this instance, you know, my my thing is like. You know, leave main characters alone. You know, supporting characters, I don't care so much. Uh, like with the Thor movie, I guess when they made Heimdall, when they cast Idris Elba to play Heimdall, and Heimdall in the comics had always been a, a white guy, there were, you know, 12 guys named Cooter that cared about that. But the, the bigger issue is who freaking cares? Who even knows who Heimdall is before this movie? Like, yeah, some people who have read the comics, but, you know, it's not like they're. They're you know changing the race of, of all the characters. They're changing the race of a, of a side character and bringing in a really good actor to play him. Didn't care about that. Um, so Butler and his niece, who were both present. Well, I think it was like in, in the book, it was Butler's little sister. Um, they were both definitely you know white people with blonde hair. And this one, they got two uh, black actors to play the characters. I can't remember the name of the actor who played Butler, but he did an excellent job. He brought all of the. Uh, the physical prowess and the and the clout and the the weight and the gravitas of the character, uh, as as well as you know the the emotional depth to him. He's not just hired muscle or or a henchman, both in the movie and in the book. You know you could tell that Butler cared about his charge, uh, you know cared about taking care of Artemis and uh, you know was was compassionately involved. But also there were there were lines that Artemis crossed in the book that Butler was like, okay, hang on, you know I know that I'm working for you and that you know I'm unquestioningly loyal to your family but this that you just did was wrong and I've got a problem with it and you know there there were there was nobody that walked out of the book that didn't have you know some some shot at showing multiple angles to their character you know that goes for Butler that goes for his niece Juliet that goes for Artemis that goes for everybody uh, which which was great in the book. It didn't happen so much in the movie. One of the other things that I want to bring up as a final bit of contrast is there's a character in the book and in the movie. Her name is Holly Root. She is a, a fairy, and she's one of these uh, leprechaun officers. And her motivation in the book was somewhat different from the, from the movie, mainly because in the book she was the first female fairy on what had historically for thousands of years been an all-male police force. In the book, uh, or excuse me, in the film, that angle was taken away because her commanding officer, they, they did a, a gender swap on it. Um, Julius Root was his name, and uh, I think in the movie they just called her Commander Root, and they cast Judy Dench to play her, which, you know, Judy Dench, great actress, you know, and, and she was able to play the the gruff, mean commander angle really well, but it completely changed the the dynamic between uh, Holly and uh, did I say Ro- Holly Short is her name, Holly and uh, and Commander Root, um, you know because she she was 
uh, a female officer that had to prove herself in an all-male world and you know changing that really changed the nature of her struggle they put in some other thing about like oh i gotta go clear my father's name in the movie which it might have happened in the later books i think i've read the first three and, and i gotta catch up with the rest of the series but it was it was a bit of a mess um I think one thing that they, that they did right was, you know, casting Josh Gad to play Moltz Diggums. Um, he was pretty accurate from the movie to the way that he was in the book, and uh, you know that that was fine. He was even pretty humorous. He was a lot of the comedy relief in both. Still kind of gross seeing a dwarf unhinge his jaw so he can eat dirt and poop it out and at high speed to break into a place. I don't know. It was weird. <sighs> If I'm going to give the movie credit on anything, I think it did the visuals really well, and I think it did the score incredibly well. Um, I mean, to be completely honest, I, I can't think of a movie that I've hated where at least the score, uh, you know, wasn't redeemable. Even The Fountain, which is the dumbest movie I've ever seen, has an excellent score by Clint Mansell. Artemis Fowl, also a great score. Very beautiful Irish music, you know, matches the the different tones and, and pacing of the movie that they're trying to capture along the way. So it does all that great. Um, but the most important thing, you know, the, the, the two most important elements of any movie are character and story. And you can put great graphics on there, you can blow stuff up, you can show me something cool, show me monsters, whatever. But if you're not going to get character and story right, the rest of it doesn't matter. So I think that's kind of why Disney saw the writing on the wall and they didn't bother releasing um, Artemis Fowl in theaters, especially with coronavirus, but even if they had, coronavirus wouldn't have been the reason that it, it failed. Um, you know, even without coronavirus, the movie would have failed because it just wasn't good, and the people that they needed to please most, which were the fans of the book, who would have gotten the word of mouth going to all their friends and everything, hated it. And you know what, Frick, even without the fans of the book, it just wasn't a very good movie. Uh, it, it didn't do all of the things that made the book good because... They took out all the things that made the story good. So if you haven't, if you and if you've been curious, I'd recommend checking out Artemis Fowl. Like I said, I read the first three. There are eight of them. And uh, my library has them, so I'm going to dig into the rest. That'll do it for this week. And based on the knocking and the shaking on the outside of my truck, it sounds like they are done loading me. So I need to get rolling. So should you. Drive safe. See you guys out there.